For the first episode of the Lebanon series of In the Eyes Of, we are joined by Richard. Richard is a French Lebanese student who is pursuing his PhD in musicology. In this conversation, we talk about Richard's work and background, music institutions in Lebanon, and the current situation in the country. I hope you enjoyed this episode, part of the Lebanon series of In the Eyes Of. Richard, welcome to In the Eyes Of. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? In general, well, I'm a French Lebanese uh, musicologist, I mean, doctoral student in musicology, and I'm uh, currently studying at Royal Holloway, University of London, so that's on the outskirts of London. And I'm on my first year of my PhD. I've been going back and forth to Lebanon in the, during the past year, basically. I've been there twice. That's pretty much my situation right now now in life <laughs> so uh, i'm interested can you please tell us how you got into the musical field because not it's not a field that everyone's very much interested in well yes and no because actually i don't know any any single person that doesn't really like music or that's super rare i might know a couple of persons that actually don't like music but these are rather the exception so uh it's something i guess everyone is curious about since a very young age and that was my case obviously but a uh, few people actually get the chance to be well guided early on and actually i didn't have the chance to get really a professional education uh, since i was young because i started relatively late i was interested in music when i was a child and i would listen to lots of uh, music i mean my my parents uh, they had a huge discography and uh, most of it was classical music so i would delve into it since i was little and uh, you know stay under the covers uh, <laughs> with a with a cd player and listen to i don't know mozart's requiem or schumann schumann's piano concertos or schubert's chamber music i was like you know the classics getting introduced to the big masterpieces of the, the classical repertoire but actually uh, uh, at that time I didn't have a proper training because uh, my mother started giving me a few lessons on the family piano which used to belong to my grandmother who also played the piano and so my mother gave me my first you know sporadic lessons but it was very irregular and we were waiting to actually contact proper piano tutor but that never happened for some reason <laughs> And uh, my parents lagged and lagged and hesitated, and I didn't have a proper uh, tutor until I was 14 or 13, actually, which is relatively late, but never too late, but relatively late. And that's very oh, wow. interesting, you know, because usually children don't listen to classical music. Like, it's not something they're really into. Some do, some do, some do. not many, I must say. But why wouldn't they? I mean, it depends. It depends. Lots of, I'd say not lots of children uh, prefer classical music or are really genuinely passionate about it but lots of them do i mean depends on their background depends on the facilities they have uh, maybe back in the days it would it would probably have been more difficult because you needed to, to actually buy cds and you know have your parents to buy you stuff or to encourage you but nowadays it's so it's so easy i mean any any child can go on uh, on YouTube or on Spotify and listen to stuff. So nowadays, I think it's easier for children. And as a matter of fact, I think that more children uh, try to, you know, explore, let's say, different kind, kinds of musical tastes and more specifically classical. So it's no longer a niche thing that you have to be able to afford, that you don't see on TV, that you, it's, you know, it's out there. So like any other musical genre, I think children are able to get access to it 
nowadays. Yeah, right now we have more access, so it's easier to explore and just to see what's out there. Children or others, I mean, to get started when you're not really acquainted with this, you don't have this impression that it's something distant or that it's something very alien to people that you actually have to be able to access. It's it's just out there like anything else, so that's a great thing. But yes, probably in the late 90s, that was probably not the case. <laughs> So, yeah. So, you were saying that you were in your first year of your PhD. Can you tell, tell us a little bit more about it? Oh, wait. Um, I, 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 got to the, I, got, I got to the point where I was starting to have an actual musical background. So, I started with a private uh, tutor and then I joined the Beirut Conservatory uh, with the same teacher who has been extraordinary. And, uh, you know, she's so, she's so good especially given the case that I've uh, started at a relatively late age. I call her the, the patron saint of desperate causes because uh, she was able to, to make something as much as possible out of me. <laughs> it was hard, but eventually I got to the conservatory and graduated and I had, I had my undergraduate degree uh, last year. And here that's, I am now. <laughs> that's very exciting. And I can imagine it's been a long journey, like a lot of practice and a lot of dedication to what you're doing. Definitely. It's, it's not an easy thing. I mean, especially if you think of what we call, whatever that means, a classical training in music. I'm not training as a, to be a professional pianist anymore, but I did an undergraduate degree and uh, now I'm mostly into research. So I'm, just to make that clear, I'm definitely not training as a professional instrumentalist, as a professional performer anymore. I'm, I, I continue, I'm continuing my piano practice. Uh, I still like uh, preparing new repertoire, sight reading, working even on my technique at this point, but I'm not seeking a graduate degree in piano performance. That's, uh, that's very important to know. But yes, uh, I've had some long uh, practice years. And I'm curious about it. So why did you decide to go into musical research instead of performance? Well, that's actually a conjunction of different factors. Because another question you might ask me is why I didn't decide to continue my architecture studies that I was I was starting yes. at the time. So, so that that's a, another question too. So all these whys, I think it's just a matter of affinity and luck and opportunities. Because it started in 20... I'm bad at dates. It started in 2018 when I was still at the Beirut Conservatory and uh, in architecture school. So I was doing this double major in two different institutions. And uh, I was less and less interested in, uh, you know, the technical turn my architecture studies were taking in the last few years or in the first year of my master's because I had already completed my BA. I was less and less interesting in, interested in that aspect of my architecture studies and more and more interested in the musical musical major I was undertaking at the same time. And at that time, I started being interested in what we could call, it wasn't exactly musical musicolo musicological research at the time, what I was doing. I was more into, it was very vague, but it was tending towards critical thinking or comparative literature, including or uh, aesthetics, you know, generally speaking, philosophical approaches to art, which included uh, the topic that I'm addressing now, which is Wagner's uh, music dramas. 
But the way I started addressing this, because I've always been very passionate about Wagner and opera, and not always, but from a certain point, I started being... It's been there. It's been, opera has been there since the beginning. Like, you know, one of the, in my, in my under the bed sheets phase, when I would listen to my music, it would mostly be opera, you know, but at that time it was Mozart, Gounod, uh, some, some Wagner actually, but not mostly Wagner, uh, Verdi, Puccini, you know, the, 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 these things. But uh, Wagner came at a relatively later stage. But when I was when I got into it, I got really passionate in a relatively short short time. I, I really got into it. So around that time, I started doing this research between avant-garde conceptions of uh, total art in theater and comparing them to what Wagner tried to do, which were obviously bringing together very different practices. So I was trying to see what could be common between Artaud's a theater of cruelty, Bertolt Brecht's theater, and Wagner, in the sense that always the, all these uh, practices had in common a certain holistic idea of theater and drama or music. And uh, I wanted to, to see what they really had in common in spite of their apparent differences. So that's where it started. And I started, I don't know why, I was very brave. I mean, I was a bit foolish and reckless so, uh, because I was starting, I, I started sending uh, articles for publication in French journals and stuff, you know, in scholarly journals. I don't know why I was, I was really reckless and stupid, but it worked. So I got actually published. I don't know how. I wouldn't call it reckless, but rather, like you said, brave, you know, like you just took the opportunity. But the thing is that I had nothing to lose, you know. I was in architecture school and I was unhappy and I, I had all these ideas. So I just, you know, started writing them down in article form in, in the form of a scholarly article. And I just started sending them away. So it was just this excess of energy and <laughs> enthusiasm that had to had to go somewhere. And yes, eventually I, uh, I started sending articles for publications, which was something very silly to do for a, for an undergraduate. But eventually it it paid off so i started you know getting into that and the next step was um, i started applying for conferences a bit everywhere i've got some positive responses but uh, eventually i chose just one of them which was a very very interesting uh, conference or colloquium at oxford university on wagner and uh, the early 19th century so that was more or less what i was focusing on at the time and that was a brilliant opportunity because I think I've never witnessed so far uh, such a concentration of experts and brilliant minds and not just brilliant minds in general, but like-minded scholars in my field or even even in different fields where that were all together and there was this genuine spirit of exchange and mutual emulation where people were asking questions uh, debating over things and you didn't have this, this you didn't have this sort of annoying aspect of scholarly or academic conferences where people are there just to showcase their ideas and they don't care about exchanging it was really totally the opposite it was quite unique it was more engaging and more you know like back and forth Yes, it was really back and forth. There was this this really very interesting uh, two-way exchange. And that's rare, you know. <laughs> I'm sad to say, but that's rather the exception than the norm. <laughs> so that was a good, you know, first experience. And plus it was at a very, you know, stimulating uh, university and a very beautiful setting. And that's where 
I uh, met first my would-be supervisor, who was Roger Allen at uh, St. Peter's College at the Oxford University, and my current supervisor, who is uh, Mark Berry, who's here at Royal Holloway at the music department, and who would later on put me in contact with my current co-supervisors. So I have two supervisors now, Mark and Paul Harper-Scott, who is, who are both, I mean, two of the most brilliant scholars I've ever encountered. It's, uh, it's really fascinating to work with them. So uh, that's where, that's how I got, you know, into a more research-oriented um, path, let's say, because it just, they, they told me at the issue of the conference that Roger Allen, my Oxford would-be supervisor, he came to me and he said, uh, look, uh, uh, come and see me in my office. And then we had a discussion and he, and he told me it was, it would have never crossed my mind. He told me to, to send him <laughs> uh, a thesis proposal. He, he told me this out of the blue and I thought he was joking. <laughs> I thought he was making fun of me because I was a, you know, an architect undergraduate, but he said, uh, no, I'm really interested. I was really interested in your, in your paper and what you said. So, uh, please send me a thesis proposal. And then we tried uh, having a co-supervised thesis between him and Oxford and Mark, who's my current supervisor here in Royal Holloway. But apparently there was no such program. So I had to choose eventually. And now here I am with, uh, uh, I did, I, no, no, I applied to both uh, universities separately. I didn't get Oxford in spite of my supervisor's uh, support, but I did get Royal Holloway and so I'm, I'm here now. And that's it. So they actually asked me to uh, to submit a proposal and otherwise it would have never, it would have never crossed my mind ever. <laughs> so uh, it's sort of a mix of luck, affinities, of course, hard work and, uh, you know, opportunities. And that's how you end up somewhere. But I think it's also <laughs> your passion for it because I think like oh, it's in your voice, you know, like how passionate you are towards this feel. And that's fascinating. That's amazing, to be honest. Not many well, people yeah. are lucky enough to find their passions. No, it's a hard thing, actually. It involves, as I said, a lot of luck because I might never have got uh, to talk in a conference or I might never have got to meet these people, etc. It's just, a, you know, a coordination of lucky lucky opportunities and of course uh, you make it happen because of your passion and because of hard work etc but it you could have been a hard worker i could have been a hard worker and it could have been you know much much harder for me to to do this so you never know how things happen no i think it's fascinating it's listening to you talk about it it makes me so happy that you're so passionate about it. That, that's nice of you. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I, I am actually passionate about it. Otherwise, I don't think I would be able to carry on because, you know, even uh, in the first few years or in the first few months, first of all, research in general is mentally straining, stressful, because you're all alone and you have, you have to, not only you have to go off track in a certain way you have to the purpose of research is researching is bringing in a contribution in your field so you're off beaten tracks so you have to basically try to move forward in a branch of your field that has never been explored before so you have no no ba or very little basis of course you use much precedent you use resources etc but to some extent and what in what you're doing you have to 
push forward in something where you have no ground and that's very stressful and difficult for many people including me it's time consuming it's effort consuming etc but that that's what i'm i want i want to say is that if you're not passionate enough it's very very hard to to carry on and that's why many people start a phd and then drop it's because it's definitely not for everyone it's uh, you really no, have to you really have to With the uncertainty yes it's 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 um it can be crippling at times for some people i truly believe that it's not for anyone because it's it's a specific you know path that not anyone might might like to engage in so yeah i think i could agree on that being a scholar is not something because as you said it doesn't only require hard work or discipline but also i think it takes courage to take this leap of faith and just explore and to see what's out there and then find the right basis for it yeah that's ideally but i'm not saying that all scholars uh, do this you know some scholars have a much more modest scope i mean they do obviously they contribute a lot to the discipline but say that every scholar seeks to have a very original contribution to his discipline some of them are more modest let's say in this scope so it's a, it's it's a way of managing the the challenges of absolutely having to produce original content it's uh, that's one of the responses to it but definitely ideally for me personally you should try to really have a contribution or at least move forward in things that were relatively unexplored so i'm curious how do music institutions differ for example in lebanon than in the UK, where is oh where you're studying? <laughs> uh, there are lots of differences. Unfortunately, I must say, musical institutions in Lebanon are far behind uh, what you can find in other countries. I mean, not specifically the UK, not specifically London, but lots of institutions, whether in Europe, in the Americas, and even in uh, Eastern Asia. I think there are many reasons to this. Again, I'm speaking from my point of view. I'm only knowledgeable to a certain extent when it comes to the history of music institution in Lebanon. And uh, I know, obviously, you know, some some historical facts about it and some administrative facts about it, but they're limited to my own experience of them. So I'm going to speak mostly from experience and from my perception of these institutions. So I think one of the big differences between Lebanese musical institutions and the other, let's say, is their age. I mean, they're, they're, the Lebanese Conservatory, which is, let's say, the first music institution, the first serious mu- musical institution in Lebanon, to what I know, uh, is relatively recent. It was founded, if I'm not mistaken, in the early 50s. And so not too long ago. Uh, not long ago at all. Not long ago. And uh, so it's a relatively recent institution. And there were contemporary musical institutions among which uh, the Académie Libanaise des Beaux-Arts, uh, where I did my actually uh, my architecture studies. But initially it had a music department, but that stopped around uh, the beginning of the Civil War, I think. So that was another sort of contemporary a musical institution, but that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it's it's been long, uh, it's been closed long since. So that that's the I think the first real official music institution in Lebanon. That's the National Conservatory, and afterwards, uh, gradually, most university nowadays no, not most, but most prominent universities nowadays in Lebanon 
have a music department or a musicology program, at least as a minor, because I know that the AUB, the American University of Lebanon, doesn't have a music department and it doesn't have a major in music. But you can, if you validate certain courses, you can have your minor in music. So that's their take on how to have a music program. It's sort of a, a semi, it's, it's, a, it's a compromise between having an actual uh, music program okay. and having a, a, a minor in music. And plenty of other universities that have a music department that provide programs either in performance and in instrumental training or musicology. From your perspective, do many Lebanese people have like this interest in music institutions or in music field? Do many Lebanese people have interest in this? I think yes. Again, from my perspective, from the people I've known, people I've met from, well, the student life, if you can call it this, at the Lebanese conservatory, because there was no such thing as student life. It wasn't something that was very much encouraged. That's one of the problems of the institutions. Maybe I can continue talking about the difference between institutions uh, at a later point. But I do think that there is a lot of interest in taking up music because, you know, in Lebanon and in Lebanese institutions, there isn't just the uh, Western classical tradition that's taught. You also have the Oriental or Arabic music tradition that's also taught in the conservatory and in different universities. So you have two, let's say, classical traditions that are being taught simultaneously in musical institutions in Lebanon. And so in the wider sense, lots of people, whether young or not, are very interesting in taking up an instrument or learning to sing, whether in either or the other of the these two traditions. So uh, that's for when it comes to classical training. A lot of uh, Lebanese people are interested in pop music, etc. But you don't really have you have some music schools that teach this. But I mean, I don't know to what extent you can really teach pop music. It's more more of a you know individual thing. So in terms of classical training, I know lots of people who are interested in taking up an Arabic uh, instrument like the oud or the kanun or percussions or singing. And the same is true for um, Western instruments or Western vocal traditions. You have a great amount of students who, uh, who, want, who want to take up the piano, the guitar, you know, these are classics. You have a huge amount of students who want to do the, the guitar, the piano, but also the violin. And now the conservatory is working on um, a program for first year, you know, baby students uh, where they don't start by picking an instrument, but they have this sort of musical, let's say, uh, training. They call it formation musicale, so musical training, which is a very general course when, where they discover uh, all the instruments that they can, uh, uh, that they could wow. learn, yes, and hearing music, learning rhythm, you know, basic things prior to picking an instrument. So that's, that aims at diversifying. I mean, that's, that's done in most uh, institutions in the, in the world, but that's a relatively new thing in, uh, in the Lebanese uh, conservatory. So that- I had never heard of it. To be, well, at least, I mean, I'm not very well cultured about the music field in Mexico, but I have never heard of something like that. I'm pretty sure it must exist in, in, in some academies in Mexico. I'm pretty sure it must be, because it's a, it's, a, it's a given now in most countries, uh, you know, to give this openness, to give this chance for children to have an overview of music in general, to decide whether they want to continue in the first place. And second, what they want to do if they want to sing, they want to play the saxophone, the guitar, or, you know, 
completely obscure instrument they might have fallen in love with. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, because prior to the recording and everything, we were talking about how the Lebanese revolution has been affecting, you know, daily life. So right now, three weeks barely after the explosion, I wanted to ask you, how do you think this is going to affect not only the music field, but also daily lives of people from your perspective, of course? From my perspective, I think the lives of people were already affected by the financial crisis and the sanitary crisis uh, due to the COVID-19 uh, COVID. COVID outbreak. So that was already hugely affecting the lives of Lebanese people. Uh, obviously, the blast is making things work and is only gonna only it has only begun to to make things work because make things worse because uh, of the housing crisis that's gonna that's probably going to be a consequence because of the huge damage to the port infrastructure that can only you know worsen the blow of the economical crisis it's you know added damage to something that was already very very troubled initially so it's just a cherry on top a huge cherry obviously but it was already pretty bad before the blast did you specifically ask about the music musical institutions or you mean uh, the the the, um, the the consequences on lebanese life in general feel free to talk about anything i mean obviously uh, public institutions in general are being affected by all the budgetary cuts i mean uh, the national conservatory was always the last concern of the Lebanese governments. They've always undergone wage cuts, budgetary cuts, uh, their infrastructure has always been underfunded. It's, it's, it's a very sad situation, honestly. So uh, that's bound to get even worse now. The sanitary crisis also has affected teaching at the conservatoire, which had to be done online, which as you can imagine, isn't very viable when it comes to, you know, when it comes to uh, instrumental lessons. I mean, you can give a music theory course online. It's just like any lecture, you know, any any theoretical course. But when it comes to instrumental tutoring, it's absolutely, it's very difficult <laughs> to do this online. So I know that my teachers have struggled uh, a lot, but what can you do? I mean, it's better than nothing if you can't meet people uh, face to face. Exactly, at least there's yeah, like some part of it still alive. Yeah, at least there's something, you know, at least you can give some advice, you can give some stimulus to the people, to the students who are working at home and having no opportunity to showcase their work, either to their teachers or colleagues or, you know, so it's it's absolutely better than nothing, but it's still it's still hard to, uh, to teach, uh, for instance, have a piano lesson online. Uh, the sound is distorted, you can't properly see the position of a student, you can't uh, point at the passage uh, chords, you can't, you know, beat the rhythm. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that you can't really do. So, But it was, you know, a sort of emergency solution. So that's one. Uh, concerning the blast, I'm still mainly referring to musical institutions in Lebanon and specifically the conservatoire, sorry. The conservatoire because university also are also experiencing budget uh, issues but they're relatively more likely to get back on their feet eventually compared to the lebanese conservatory or any other public institution especially as underfunded and as neglected i'm sorry to say an institution as the lebanese conservatory the blast has affected the infrastructure and conservatory building which is very sad i've seen pictures they're heartbreaking. I mean, as if the institution hasn't su hadn't suffered 
enough and now you know there's glass debris everywhere some instruments are damaged i think uh, i saw a photo of um, a harp practice room i think it was a relatively new instrument they had invested in and i don't know if the instrument is damaged but I mean, they're fragile instruments, so there was shattered glass all over the place. It might have been damaged. I can only imagine the piano rooms, the uh, all the instruments who were still there, like percussions, you know, the in- instruments of the National Lebanese Orchestra that are uh, stored there. They might have been affected. One of the churches where the Lebanese Orchestra performs, the Lebanese Philharmonic performs, uh, has been damaged, and obviously it's not it's not a big deal, but symbolically that's one of the buildings associated to um, to the Lebanese conservatory. So the buildings and infrastructure and probably the instruments has suffered, but you know it's nothing compared to the economical hardship and the sanitary, the sanitary crisis. Hardship too. I'm sorry. Or the humanitarian hardship. Oh, not, yeah, not to be, not not to be mentioned the humanitarian aspect to it. Yeah. So um, and uh, do you want me to talk about? what I think of the general concept. Sure, whatever you feel comfortable with. I remember you mentioned that in your time in Lebanon, this past few weeks, you were helping out on um, like with an NGO. Yes, I only did one week because I had to come here. So that was one week of work with an excellent NGO called Arc-en-Ciel, uh, not Arc-en-Ciel, sorry, Offrejoie. I'm really bad, at, I, I get confused with names. Offrejoie. No, it's fine, I mean, you're bound to, you speak two languages, so just going back and forth. No, no, I just mixed, mixed, mixed two NGOs, anyway. Offrejoie or Farah Lata means uh, giving joy, and it was founded during the Lebanese Civil War. It has been there for a pretty long time. And it was one of the first NGOs that really started to help that started to help on the uh, on site and so yes i've had an experience with them and i've uh, had the chance to assess the, the the damage and the casualties in the you know the most affected neighborhoods i was in carantina so in the port in the Mdawar district which is near the port which is basically facing the port so um the situation there is disastrous needless to say i think that the the, the thing i've noticed or the conclusion I've come to while I was, uh, you know, helping out there, even if it was for a short uh, period of time because um, I had to travel. Um, the thing, the conclusion I got to is that, the, the, okay, obviously the, the material damage is uh, huge, it's immense, but, you know, um, in the end, when you see the work uh, that can be done in one week, you know, the restoration works, refurbishings, uh, uh, supplying food, uh, you know, whatever aid can be supplied. When you see what work can be done if you're really active in a week, you start thinking that, okay, the material damage can be uh, compensated for. Obviously, people are have lost lo- lots of their money, and etc. So if there isn't public aid, whether international or local, or funded by NGOs, there's no way these neighborhoods can be rebuilt. But suppose that the funding is available from international organizations, from local organizations, probably not from the Lebanese government because um, no one trusts them, honestly. When it comes to managing public policies, they are no longer they are no longer trusted. I think they're only trusted by a handful of people nowadays in the civil society. Well, anyway, so the material damage provided that there are funds is not, you know, irreparable it's not it, it can be it can be rebuilt it can be fixed I, I i do think so but the huge issue is the humanitarian issue i mean 
the people that have been wounded and who have died, who have lost their homes, who have uh, been through this, let's say, moral shock, human shock, and the physical uh, physical shock of people and physical uh, suffering of people. That's the thing that's going to be much harder to uh, come to terms with, much infinitely more than the material damage, which eventually can be remedied. I, I do think so. As far as yeah, I've I seen, see that you have so much hope in that, and that's good. Like I have not much. <laughs> I'm I'm much more of a pessimist, to be very honest. I'm more of a pessimist because the, you know, the the serious aspect of the 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 serious damage or the serious aspect of the catastrophe, which is more of the human aspect, is pretty bad, if you ask me. So uh, the material damage is nothing compared to that. So. And the material damage is pretty disastrous anyway. It's not because it can eventually be repaired that it doesn't count. It obviously counts, but what's, you know, a lot bigger is, um, let's say, the human emotional, the human loss and uh, the human casualties, whether uh, injuries or death. So the human damage, the human uh, casualties are huge. And uh, so it's pretty, pretty depressing when you think of it. So that's what I think of it. And the thing is, it is not just due to that's what we mustn't forget. It isn't just due to the blast. It's really it has been a very tough year where, you know, (laughs) everything in Lebanon, whether the monetary system, the political system, the social, I mean, the society's trust in the government has just crumbled apart as it should have happened years ago. It was a long overdue social revolution, a long overdue financial collapse due to the corruption and to the uh, management on behalf of the political of the political class. Uh, So I'm actually surprised that the system lasted that long since the end of the war. (laughs) So but here we are. It's that year that it was no longer viable and it started collapsing. And so it has been a tough year politically financially, socially, in all, every regard. And then you had the blast. That's that's how I think we should put it in perspective. It's a huge blow to an already worsening situation. Yeah, and I have no words to... Like, I don't think there's anything I can say that could explain it any better. There aren't any, because, you know, so far we would say, okay, it's fine. Let's uh, focus on one positive thing, thing, you know, or say, oh, at least we have that or at least you have that and that. But, you know, at some point, you're like, um, the, the situation is becoming so disastrous that you say, you just, you're just waiting for the next blow. So yeah, it's, it's, overwhelmed it's overwhelming because one problem causes another problem to worsen. So the sanitary crisis has caused the financial crisis to worsen. And now this blast is gonna is gonna make things even worse. Can you imagine? The port is uh, half of the port is literally destroyed. It's not that it's damaged. Some of the equipment is not damaged, obviously, but a huge part of the warehouses of the port, of the uh, the, the the grain stocks, everything is uh, yeah, completely port. destroyed. I mean, it's not as if Beirut at this point or Lebanon in general could have afforded such a blow on a on a, on a on an infrastructure on a on a vital infrastructure like the port where we were already f- fearing food shortages and uh, and uh, you know such issues before the port was destroyed so 
Uh, can you imagine what what uh, the issues are, are going to be now? It's a good thing that um, you know this event mobilized a lot of uh, international help, but I wonder whether this help is going to continue if it's going to be consistent, because we're going to need it for a very long period of time, and whether the help is going to be enough because it's such an immense blow. It's it's such a vital infrastructure that that's uh, half destroyed. Uh, so uh, it's really one thing worsening the other. It's a, it's an inextricable knot of <laughs> problems that yeah. Yeah, that needs attention and help. Oh, it, it is getting attention now. I mean, come on, it took a blast for no, the situation yeah. to get attention. I'm not saying that it didn't get attention Which is before. It's, it is important. I'm not saying that the blast is a positive thing because, and I'm not saying that uh, attention wasn't given before because there, there was sort of a gradual coverage of the uh, financial oh, crisis. Powder. Yes, yes. And uh, of the of the uh, effects of the sanitary of the pandemic on the financial crisis. So that was sort of covered. But then I think uh, the blast gave it a lot more attention. And obviously now help is flowing more than ever. And that's a great thing. But uh, um, I'm not an economist, so I'm not sure how I can grasp uh, the balance between the damage that has been done and the help that's needed and the help that's coming in. So I'm really not sure whether the help that's being provided is going to be enough on the long run, because that's a crisis that's going to affect the country for the next few months, uh, even years, you know. So this help obviously is going to be coming in the next few months, that's for sure. But is it going to be consistent enough? Is it going to be... Is it going to... Um, is it going to be uh, carried out on the long term? Is it going to be sufficient in, in terms of quantities? I'm really not sure how it's going to balance out the huge needs and the worsening situation of the country. So that's what we still need to see. And the problem is that we don't have a regu regulating central uh, organism, which should be the government. So this is, uh, uh, is, is simply not happening. Yeah, because from what I've been listening on the news and following around, it's the people doing everything. So it's yeah. the own Lebanese communities just lifting each other up. I mean, you have theatricals made by uh, the Lebanese army or uh, embassies uh, in other countries, but they're, first of all, they're mostly mediatic attempts because uh, you can ask any volunteer that was on the ground in the first two weeks of the uh, the two weeks following the uh, the blast, you can ask any one of these volunteers or activists whether the the Lebanese army or the Lebanese security forces have been doing anything. They've been sitting, and I've seen them literally sitting and looking at the uh, people cleaning up the rubble, people helping people, and just uh, watching them. And yeah, so that's uh, sad. And occasionally they would, you know. Uh, hire a cameraman, ha hire, uh, 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 you know, yeah, a, 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 a film crew, a shooting crew, and go go and hand things to people and then film it as a part of a sort of uh, advertising stunt uh, for themselves. I mean, it's pathetic. And I've I've seen one of these things, actually, because when I was working uh, with uh, Afrojois during this last week when I was in Lebanon, where I was volunteering, so I was working in the food distribution team where we would distribute food to the volunteers of this uh, NGO that were working in, in the area and to the um, residents. 
of the area. So we would provide the lunches of the different teams of the NGO and we would go to the houses of, you know, the local residents and distribute whatever food they might need, you know, to alleviate the the financial burden and everything. So some people didn't have any, any kitchen. And so some people had, and were already struggling through. They were already struggling. So um, I was part of this team. So at some point, uh, three days after I started, uh, there was uh, an army, uh, an army truck that came to the parking just in front of us and uh, started distributing uh, food, uh, not, 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 not meals, we distribute meals, but they started distributing, you know, um, basic supplies such as flour rice, and bread, I like think, that. rice, I don't know, stuff like that. I think it was mostly flour, but they were doing so according to people's uh, IDs. So they would check people's IDs and check whether they were Lebanese before accepting to donate food to them. So actually they were excluding Syrian refugees or other non-Lebanese nationals. And I've, I've seen how brutal they were because one of the, one of the, um, there was, I think one, one security officer and one guy who was wearing uh, information, information uh, services uh, jacket. So uh, these people are always very sketchy, you know, the Muhabarat. They're always uh, looking for trouble. And he was pretty brutal with some of uh, the uh, the people who were in this long queue. You know, people were desperate for food. And some of them actually turned out not to be Lebanese, to be, I think they were Syrian uh, refugees, most probably. And he threw them out. He told them, um, uh, and then there was another, which means uh, you're a Syrian girl, uh, then you won't get any. You can't get any. That's just for Lebanese people. And uh, another guy also uh, presented himself at the desk and also turned out to be Syrian. He just grabbed him and threw him outside of this parking. I mean, it was pretty brutal. It was very, very far from the humanitarian mise en scène they were trying to make. And uh, that says a lot about the act, or rather the inaction of uh, the army and other uh, public institutions. So they've done close to nothing. It's really, as you said, the people out there. And if anything, the army or other governmental organism, they're either pretending to help or actually getting in the way of people helping by uh, uh, arresting them sometimes because they don't have, a, because some uh, workers might not have a permit or something. That's, I, I've heard this happens to uh, a cafe owner and Jamaican who got arrested because uh, he refused to to show the identity papers of his uh, workers. I don't know. So uh, they they're either pretending to do something, at best not doing anything, and at worst uh, getting in the way of people. And it, it's 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 really uh, the climate of mistrust is totally justified. I and I think I can understand that by listening to you. Like I. It's it's not something it's not something that that we're speculating on. It's something that we're witnessing, you know. And I'm no longer in Lebanon. Lots of things are happening right now that I'm mostly following through uh, social media, but or the news or my friends. But uh, I no longer have an immediate experience of them. But lots of things are still happening there. So um, yeah, I, I'm I'm speaking of my own experience and what I know. But things are still happening every day and I think it's up to 
for the international community to keep following and not forgetting what's happening and not ignoring or neglecting and also trying to donate or help out as much as we can to our limitations. Yes, I do think the national community has a lot to do in this um, in terms of material help, but also in terms of political pressure, because what we need right now is uh, what we need ideally is a constitutional change because lots of the limitations of the actual, lots of the crippling limitations of the actual political systems are, of the actual political system is due to um, uh, the sectarian system where, you know, political parties or political representatives are elected according to their, uh, their sect, I mean, their religious, uh, their religion. And yeah. there are certain quotas, and it all works uh, on basis of these uh, criteria. So ideally, this would be a significant change that we should be able to arrive to. But meanwhile, the priority is still to be able to be able to form a, a true independent technocratic government that might ensure the transition towards a constitutional change. But that's nowhere near what's happening right now, because. Um, even even supposing that they organized anticipated elections, nothing says that the same parties won't be elected again. So there are still um, lots of problems to be solved politically, and a renewal of the political uh, of the political class it's not going to happen overnight, and especially uh, not without an international pressure. That I think is very important. So to close up the conversation. Is there anything, like just one phrase, just one thing you'd want to say to international communities regarding the situation? I'd say um, that it's difficult to understand. Lebanon is difficult to understand because it's a knot of conflicts, of tensions, complexities, contrasts, diversity, which is either, you know, a, a beautiful diversity or a... Uh, a huge struggle when these uh, diversity turn into uh, this diversity turns into a conflict and a sort of clashes. So uh, the th one thing I'd like to say is that bear with us. Uh, it's difficult to understand for us as well. So <laughs> because if you if you get into Lebanese politics or geopolitics and Lebanese uh, try to understand the Lebanese society, the Lebanese political system, you'll get lost. Obviously, if you really want to get into it. It has lots of complexities and it's puzzling and confusing at times. So one thing I need to say is bear with us because we're confused as well. <laughs> we have we have little to no idea how to get out of the get out of here because it's a it's an intricate mess, an intricate uh, knot of problems. So that's one thing I'd like to say. It's not as simple as it seems. Second thing I'd like to say, well, you know, there's on the political level, there's there's obviously a limit to which, to the extent to which uh, the international community can interfere with Lebanon's political life for the simple reason that it's much more complicated than the average person in any country of the world can understand, you know, because it's, it's a very complex constitutional system, a very complex religious diversity, a very complex history, a very complex uh, political situation. So, I don't know politically how people can help, how people can interfere, but people can give mediatic attention 
to it. People can amplify Lebanese vote voices. People can donate. People can, you know, keep the conversation running on the situation in Lebanon and the necessity to change things and not to go back to the state of passive acceptance where, you know, like we used to say that, oh, we have this government that's inefficient and that's corrupt, but what can we do? We have to ignore it and try to live nonetheless. That doesn't work anymore. That's one of the big conclusions of the the previous year. I mean, this year is that we can't ignore the deep political uh, issues. We can't say I want to live or I want to try to live or to fix things in spite of uh, the government's inability to do so or in spite of the political problems. It's you can't do this anymore. So one of the things that the I, I don't know, the international community can do is to definitely raise awareness materially or financially make donations because right now it's a crisis situation obviously but on the long run is really keep this awareness on the fact that a political change is really necessary and uh, that things in Lebanon should definitely not go back to normal <laughs> or to an acceptance of any political reality that that has been ours in the past decade. I think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. Richard, first of all, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and space for having this conversation. I think you are an incredible human being. Like I love the passion that you have for your music and everything. So thank you so much for doing this. Like I really appreciate it. Likewise, such a pleasure. Such a pleasure to meet you and Keep in touch concerning uh, your own your own work. I mean, I've been following what you've been doing on Instagram and you've been telling me that you've been running around. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so best of luck to you too. Well, thank you. 